Hello, this is Dr. Casey Bradley, and you're listening to The Real P3, a podcast dedicated to the real pork producers around the world. I am so excited about our next episode. It's with Johan Oldendahl from Zimbabwe. He's a pig farmer and an author. Hi, Casey. Yeah, thanks for letting me talk and being a part of this. Uh, my name is Johan Oldendahl. I'm basically from Zimbabwe, which is a current country in Africa, just above uh, South Africa. Um, we currently are running about 4,650 sows spread over four farms. Um, and yeah, we deal with the topics Norsefin genetics, uh, currently the TN60, which uh, we find personally to be an amazing animal. Now, I assume that with 4,600 sows, you're finishing out and owning all your pigs throughout the system? Yeah, no, this is farrow to finish. So each farm is the entire, uh, yeah, from, from farrow to finish. And then what happens to the pigs after they're grown out? So the company uh, that I work for is a vertically integrated company. So we do have uh, our own abattoir and our own processing section. So they then, uh, we supply our, li- our pigs live to the second part of the company, which is run independently. And um, they then process and supply the product into supermarket chains and yeah, wherever they can. Does most of the pork stay in Africa or is it exported to other markets? We unfortunately are unable to export. Um, we're getting a lot of our maize in externally now coming up from South Africa, so that does push the maize price up. So we are really unable to compete, uh, even within our own Southern African region, we're not really able to compete. So, yeah, there's not really a gap for us to be able to export. Um, and then also these countries are recognized, uh, foot and mouth and ASF countries. So there's also very strong restrictions on, on export. But with those challenges, from my understanding, is your herds are quite healthy. We try to, yeah, we try to maintain world standard uh, with high health. So I think we are full, we double fenced around the farms. It's a shower in system. Um, we get really good advice uh, from the topics guys on what level of biosecurity we need to be implementing. So we're never not uh, unaware of where the most recent outbreak of foot and mouth is or anything like that. We're very on the ball with that, but yeah, we are very strict with who comes into the piggery and how that person enters the piggery. So a lot of producers here in the U.S. with the threat of African swine fever are doing different mitigation strategies in the feeds. Are you guys just implementing biosecurity or is there anything special that you guys are doing to help mitigate diseases? No, we're not. eh? I think we just give the standard uh, vaccination program, which are reproduction-based vaccines. Um, But as far as treatment and stuff, all that stuff goes, we we don't do any of that. eh? I think the emphasis has to be on biosecurity. So what is your role in this company? You said it was vertically integrated. So I've been involved over the last six years um, with three of the four farms, um, basically set them up from the ground up. And uh, I've just recently moved to the fourth farm, which is the biggest of all the farms, it's 2,200 sows. 
and I'm now starting to get a handle on the milling procedure, but at the same time, keeping an eye on all the systems and uh, production standards we've put in place with pigs. So can you kind of tell us what your production standards are? I mean, that top pig female is uh, pretty robust. Yeah, so we like to chase wean per sale per year. Um, we're very competitive and we drive. We always want to know what other people's piglets wean per sale per year are. We have one farm which is fully stocked with TN60, so that's our best farm at the moment. And they are, for the last two months, weaning 32.6 pigs per sale per year. Um, but for the year, year to date, I think they're on about 31. Um, and then all the other farms, we're moving away from the old Lion 40 stock, which is also a Topics uh, genetic line. And they're sitting around 27, 28 piglets wean per sale per year. And we're hoping uh, within the next three or four months, we should be cracking nearly 30 with, with all the farms. That is awesome. So what has been the main, I guess, areas of production that you've been working at to get over that 30 mark in pushing, you know, 35 is not unreasonable with this female. So what are, what have you been working on in the systems to, to get to that point? So our biggest focus to start off with uh, when we repopulated uh, the one farm with 60s only was the gilt rearing. And yeah, we, we basically have the recommended growth curve from the genetic company on, on how that sow, how that gilt should be, should be raised. And we weigh the gilts every single week and we will adjust or hold the feed according to how she's grown. And that is also pegged against what the recommended feed intake should be. Um, we then also target um, an age and a service weight. So we're aiming for about 145 to 155 kilo service animal um, at roughly 231 days. The result has been really good for us because uh, we then chased the gain in, uh, in dry style, the gilt gestation gain. We're aiming for about 70 kilo of gain in gestation so that she does go into the farrowing house at about 220 kgs. And that's helped us because, because of that, we haven't had a second parity dip, which is what we were worried about. Um, and we feel because we've had the gilt go into the farrowing house at the right size and the right age, she's been able to come back as a really strong second, third, fourth, fifth parity. And I really feel that the born alive we're getting off of them are the big driving factor on, yeah, I think one of our strengths is our born alive. Let's take a quick break and thank our sponsors. The Sunswine Group, NutriSign, Swine Nutrition Management, and Pig Progress. Now back to our episode. So unlike most of us in the northern half of the globe we are going into fall and winter and today you're kind of going into spring um what i understand raining seasons and then hot yep. and humid weather yep. how do you manage heat stress in your barns it's very difficult on the new unit we were able to put in a forced air cooling system it's going to be 40 degrees plus with the 90 percent relative humidity and that is, that is a huge concern. We are nervous going into the season we are now. Um, so, and I think all the basics rules apply. So, and it starts with your vaccine and your semen transport and storage. We have to make sure that's done within the recommended guidelines. 
um, vaccinating sows, we do understand that they run a fever, they, they, their temperatures increase a little bit after the vaccine, so we try and vaccinate them much later in the afternoon so that if they are going to have a bit of a temperature, it'll be during the cooler parts of the day. All sour movements will also be done. We will actually go home, knock off work at 5 p.m., and then uh, a small crew would go back at around 6, 7 o'clock at night just to move the sows out of the service line so that we, we're grouping them in the coolest possible part of the day, which is also reasonable for the staff. Um, and, yeah, we are going to be irrigating the roofing on one of the farms. We've just put up a sprinkler system to try and cool the roofs down, and we're hoping that that will improve the temperature by about 7 degrees. But um, other than that, it's it's really a big challenge, eh? Yeah, I mean, 40 down to 33 is um, still hot. So with summertime, is there anything changes besides moving sows at night? I guess that's going to be your future challenge. But um, what else have you been doing to kind of offset that? Are you getting summertime dips in fertility? Is that quite common? Or what yeah. have you done to mitigate something like that? Yeah, the, we struggled with farrowing rates for a while, which we seem to have back on track. Um, I sent you quite an extensive list on all the various things we did. So, yeah, it's again with the pigs, I think we try and run everything like as a standard rule. What you do in summer is the same routine. What you're going to do in winter, there's not really much extra we can do. Um, in the farrowing house with the sows feeding, we just got to try and get the girls up a lot more. She won't eat uh, her full feed requirements. So I just think there has to be a lot more attention to detail and individual detail. And apart from the roof calling and the time of movements, there's honestly not much else I think you can do. You mentioned different service techniques and have you changed AI rods or how you're served? I mean, you talk yeah. about bore management, and yeah. running your yeah. bores a little differently. Yeah, so because we're a hotter climate, um, I think I'm not sure what everyone's current service technique is, but for example, sows that come on heat um, on the Monday morning would only be served possibly the Tuesday, um, where, our, where on our side we would probably serve them a bit earlier because because it's hotter, the heat lengths are not as long. You have a shorter heat. So instead of checking your sows once a day for service-ready animals, you'd actually be checking them twice a day. Um, we found that really helps with the, with the conception and the farrowing, especially when it warms up. That's something I had to do in Arkansas as well. We were, uh, especially with gilts, breeding every 12 hours in the summertime heat and trying to get three services yep. into our gilts. And that seemed to help us through the summertime heat as well. Exactly that. So basically the rules that apply to gilts, I think when you get really hot, uh, a lot of the sows, especially second and third parity sows, those rules would apply to the sow as well. You just got to be, I think, um, conscious of the fact that the heat lengths are not going to be nice and long and extended. So not talking about all pigs, I'm sure there's other things that you have interest in and um I know you're an author, so could you tell us a little bit about writing your first book or two? Yeah, um, I pretty much did it just to, you know, get my thoughts on a, on a page. Um, it was something that I did for myself and the family. So I'm not really, we don't really market the books. They are online, but uh, yeah, it, uh, it, I suppose it came off the back of 
being an insomniac and uh, rather than spending that time watching TV or YouTube videos, I think uh, I felt to take the hours that I struggled to sleep and do something constructive with it. Yeah, and it, look, I think writing a book for anyone is quite a journey. I'm not a qualified writer by any chance, but uh, yeah, we managed to get two really cool books out and put them online and we've had really great response uh, locally. Um, I suppose being a Zim author, everyone liked the idea of it. So yeah, and it was, I suppose, rewarding in its own way. So the book I'm reading is called The Rise of the V-Sins, if I said that right. Um, yeah. Can you explain that term? Because I thought that was unique. So um, I suppose how you pronounce it is subject to the reader, but I would always say Rise of the Vicens. And Basically, it's, uh, it's, it's rated in the fantasy genre. It's a post-apocalyptic setting, which I think is so relevant to COVID today. And where basically the survival of humanity becomes dependent on animals who are holding a grudge because of uh, centuries of, I suppose, persecution. I wouldn't know what, else, what other word to use. Um, so yeah, it has some really cool characters and uh, it's got a really, really nice um, animal effect because I've grown up in Africa. Um, I feel very strongly about our wildlife and tried to shine that through as much as I could. So, you know, you've got your characters like the lions and the elephants and the rhinos and tried to give them sort of humanize them in some way or the other. So... Is it quite common, I guess, around the pig farms that you don't have to travel too far to have a natural African safari, as most of us would picture? Things have changed in this country over the years. Um, so for us to go, we have a, a really nice life around us on the farming areas, but we don't have the game that we used to have. Uh, the game has really been hunted out um, so that there's only pockets of animals that even if we want to go see some of our basic game with the children, we still have to go and, and find a safari area. Um, they're not too far away, a couple hour drive, two, three hour drive, and you can probably be in some of the most incredible places on the planet. Um, but yeah, it's not the, the childhood I knew growing up where there was game everywhere is not uh, what we're experiencing today anymore, unfortunately. One of the saddest parts of, of being in Zim. So switching gears back to pigs, um, what do you see the changes coming for in your system, um, your country of pork production? From what I understand, you know, South Africa and some of the parts of Africa are growing in pork production. What do you see in the next five to 10 years for your company that you work with, um, the swine industry in general in that area, and maybe yourself and your career growth? Yeah, I think, uh, I think, relevant to the whole world is that there is the populations are growing um so i do feel there is a future for the swine industry and i do feel that there is there can only be growth um countries like zimbabwe where you know the poverty datum line i think is like 40 bucks a month and 80 percent of the people live under that um, the more and more people are able to earn more money, the more they will be able to purchase the, the pork products that we, we do put onto the market. So we don't just have the opportunity of normal and natural population growth. We have the opportunity that if things start turning for the better in the country and people are able to earn more and more, they, they could literally just be an explosion in the, in the market. And we're definitely not ready to supply the consumer needs. Within your own country? With, within our own country, yeah. 
Um, and I guess with that need is, I guess your company with land, is that readily available to be able to expand and, and build facilities there? Or is, would that be limitations as well? Land is available. Now you mentioned the fact that with that land though, you're still importing most of your grain to feed your sows. What other feedstuffs are you using in your system? Yeah, so we basically are using uh, grain and soya-based diets. Uh, wheat bran, we do put a bit of sunflower in, but pretty much all of the stuff we get is imported from other countries. Uh, we do get our macro packs sent up from South Africa. One of the guys joked the other day saying that the only thing we contribute lo from local production is water. And it's just availability of the raw materials. Um, the farming sector has to prioritize the population currently. And yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge um, having to buy in everything. In case I can't uh, delete that other audio, that's my little alliance sitting in the background barking. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> But before we leave, you know, do you, let's turn the table. Do you have any questions for me? I've been sitting here interviewing you. Is there anything you want, want to know from me or any advice or it's an open opportunity? Yeah, I, um, I think I'm really excited to have been put into contact with you because I feel a lot of the challenges and questions I have are going to be as and when I get confronted with them. But the current things we are working on is, and this is the big topic of the day, we actually discussed it again today, was the link between uh, your subsequent born alive litter and getting wean weights, uh, good 28-day wean weights. And I suppose that all revolves around the farring house and how you feed the sow and chasing her to lose two millimeters of back fat in the farring house would give you a really good subsequent born alive litter. But you don't get the wean weights you desire. And um, that's definitely the burning topic of the day is how do you get both <laughs> or do you have to be satisfied with one or the other? No, I think, you know, A, anything you can do to increase sow feed intake and, and maintain her body conditions, absolutely essential. So do you look at, you know, fortifying your diets a little heavier with energy and they're you know, a little more added fat that comes with a cost? But with going to a 28-day wean age versus the traditional 21 days that I'm used to managing, you know, a lot of things are creep feeding. Um, it's a good tool. You go to some of the farms in Denmark, it's really interesting. Most of those crates are, are piped with milk cups as well. So not only wean weight, they can get uh, more pigs raised on that same sow. So they're offering dry feed uh, milk replacer the sow's feeding intake's really good, but I mean, I'm always critical. We want to get as many calories as we can out of the sow by balancing her and the wean weights. So, and then sometimes, you know, depending on your health system being fairly healthy, you, you may have a better opportunity at implementing a, a broader stroke of cross fostering and nurse sows potentially to help with yep. some of those weights. Um, but it's, you know, implementing those things. And as you said, there's always trade-offs of which one you want to go after. And there's always a, usually a cost associated with that. So sitting down and, and seeing if you can find a good creep feed, uh, I'm a really big proponent. Um, a lot of producers here don't use creep feed, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of research out there showing the benefits even post-weaning of getting those pigs started faster. I really like yeah. to have my creep feed 
kind of match flavoring um, profiles and things of a mat feed that I'm using in my barns. Um, so there's a lot of things you can do um, to raise those weights, but ultimately it's dialing in on your amino acid levels, your energy levels of that sow diet, getting her up to eat. And I can tell you throughout my career, I have fed a lactating sow, you know, differently. I don't know how many different strategies we've tried from very incremental low feed amounts, starting them out to now almost being on full feed. I think, you know, when people put them on full feed, a lot of times we don't clean feeders. I was very, when I was in the barns, even as a researcher, I like nice, clean, fresh feed there. Going in the hot seasons, I've seen a lot of producers also have wet, wet feeders for sows. I think that really helps them get enough water in them. So if they're hydrated enough, they're going to want to eat as well. So I think yeah. you can implement some of that if you have that ability with your current feeders especially in, yep. in the summer if you can you know keep it fresh but keep it kind of wet and see if your sows yep. take to that and and it's just those little things there without really diving into your diet so you know you definitely may change your lactation ration if you know you're going to have a dip in feed intake this summer to maintain those weights and kind of looking at that is if it's more fortified for a lower feed intake, you can get more calories and, and more amino acids into that diet if you know what our feed intakes are. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And that um Tommy, the the milk replacer in the in the in the farrowing houses, is that not its own animal? Does it not get a bit untidy and you're not risking scours? Because it's something that we've discussed and it has been presented to us before, but I don't know if we're right or wrong, but we're trying to avoid by all means uh, having to end up going the milk replacer route. No, it's definitely its own beast. And, you know, there's, there's what we call rescue decks. So if those are managed effectively work really well, if they're not managed effectively really wrong. So in my career, I've also was probably worked on one of the first farms to put in a milk system. And we probably hindsight looking back 20 years now in my career, would say it wasn't effective for what we were doing. It caused a lot of problems because we would just take our runs and put it in there. But, yeah. um, you know, between the rescue decks and, and working with a, um, Paul Ferris would be a great guy I know here in the U.S. to talk to at Managed South Farms for Cargill Pork and, and turned into JBS. But he was really great at teaching people how to manage them properly. And when I went to Denmark, what what I really liked about their system based versus what I am, we had like a small round plastic cup with a nipple in the center of it that sat on the floor with the systems that I've used and they make a lot of mess. You have to keep your pressure right, a lot of cleaning of lines. And then I go to this Denmark farm and it's a beautifully stainless steel plumbed system with a, it almost looks like um, a water cup for a sow and it's just a small button, not very messy. So, you know, no scours that I noticed there. So it's managing right. But that's kind of when I was talking about, we want them to use it as supplemental and not their full, you know, feed. So we want them to keep nursing the sow. And that's kind of where, you know, especially day 28, you may have better luck transitioning them and starting with a creep feed than, may, you know, maybe a milk cup. 
but and probably you know, the creep feed is going to be a better bang for your dollar um, from management standpoint of labor and then system you know implementing all those plumbings and cleanings and things like that becomes a challenge and it sounds like you're um, not the best ceiling types to go plumbing in a whole bunch of stuff up on the ceilings and, and things like that as well so but there are some yeah, strategies I know some people um, have separate milk rooms so I work with a producer in Illinois. He has a special milk room and what he'll use that for is he will probably bump uh, wean some and put them in there instead of having decks in his farrowing crates that he uses. He prefers to use the, the milk room. And so he has a specialized environment from those pigs. So if you can keep them dry and warm and yeah. that kind of strategy and you know that way you can make better nurse sows and things like that. But it is a beast in itself. Um, if it's managed right, it's a good uh, mechanism to get more calories in the pigs. But um, the systems that I know that do it really well, they have one person really managing that. And, and that's all they do is keeping the lines clean, keeping them filled. I think the, the best piece of equipment I read about or saw, I would have loved to have uh, my hands on is they have those portable systems. It's basically a bucket that goes around so the crates that need that extra milk it's a bucket system clip clips right on the the side walls and um, i thought that was a pretty interesting piece of equipment to where maybe it would be easier to keep clean and just target focus the litters that need that yeah that sounds good and what sort of uh piglet numbers sort of will justify a milk group for example i mean is 30 30 piglets wings off here surely the sow should handle that it's i'm convinced it's when you get to the 35 that you you start looking at that well definitely i mean i was managing a sow herd you know with 14 and a half uh born alive on average for my research farm and you know we are very limited from a research standpoint of cross fostering uh, we batch farrowed and so I had 27% pre-weaning mortality. So if you scale that up and we could drop that pre-weaning mortality to 10%, for instance, I think a milk system would have justified that. Um, and it would have given, given me that ability maybe to create a nurse sow if I wasn't in a research environment. But it depends on your market conditions. I think if you could wean an extra pig per litter and, and it was a viable healthy pig i think that could justify a milk system but then we get into labor economics without you know maybe offline kind of sitting down with you and walking through kind of what your estimated costs are going to be to have milk replacer and then that extra pig i guess that would be a really good follow-up um, exercise for us to go through and, and sit down with your production numbers your costs and see if it's a viable opportunity yeah cool thanks for that well if there's not any other questions i'm sure we can have you back and we can have these great conversations again and um on the next time i definitely want to share my feedback of the story as i said i'm rooting for the lioness so you told me i have a long ways to go before i um decide if she's gonna be victorious or not but we'll see <laughs> yeah i can't say anything <laughs> i know well thank <laughs> you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation i really enjoyed it and 
I enjoy the opportunity of getting to work with you more in the future. So yeah, it'll be cool. Yeah, thank you so much, and thanks for touching base. Before we go, I'd like to say thank you to our sponsors again: Systems Wine Group, Nutrisign, Swine Nutrition Management, and Pig Progress. And just to give you a little sneak peek of what's coming in the future, we're planning on following up with Paul Ferris to give us further advice on how to manage milk crates effectively. Thank you for sticking around, and if you get a chance, hug a pig today for me.